You know what happens when you flip a light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Hi, everybody. Welcome to No Power Podcast. Really excited today. We've got my friend Brett White, who's the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs for a utility-scale renewable developer owner-operator called Pinegate Renewables. The Pinegate guys are a really interesting platform. They are building lots of very large solar projects, solar plus storage projects throughout the country. They're definitely focused on the southeast part of the U.S., as well as Texas and the West Coast, and certainly expanding rapidly into some other markets. Brett has got a really great background. He was a FERC attorney. In fact, NOHA knew him at the very beginning of his career with the commission. That's Is that true. right, That's true. He was an intern when I worked there, which I think dates me. <laughs> Well, since then, he moved into private practice, and now he's head of the federal interface for Pinegate with all the federal agencies out there. That's taken his career to a crazy turn where he's been really focused on a lot of international trade work, international relations, and things like that, which is a big piece of the energy transition here. We talk a lot about very exciting things with Brett, things like a second industrial revolution in the United States, what it actually takes to develop a solar panel from the mining of the materials to the actual bringing it live onto the grid to serve customers, what are the barriers involved, and how have some of the new tax policies really helped some of these developers in the space? Huge, particularly things like domestic content, bringing industry back from abroad to the U.S., as well as opportunities to invest in energy communities, trying to improve jobs and the economics tax base and things like that in some of those parts of the country. Super exciting conversation. Looking forward to hearing your feedback from it. Hope you all enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Noha Sidham, and welcome to No Power. Today, we are interviewing Brett White from Pinegate. And Mike, do you want to give a little bit of an intro about Brett? Yeah, absolutely. So, Brett, great to catch up with you here. You've been at Pinegate for a couple of years here. You guys are, as I understand it, predominantly a utility-scale solar developer owner-operator. Is that right? Yes, utility-scale, entirely solar storage, standalone storage, but yeah, focusing primarily on PV. Awesome. Any particular markets that you're focused on or parts of the country? Pinegate, as a company, is headquartered in Asheville, North Carolina. We got our start there about seven or eight years ago and grew up in North Carolina under a, a pretty solar-friendly regulatory regime in the state of North Carolina at the time. Our bread and butter is the Carolinas and in the Southeast in general. We think that we have deep ties there. The company is based there, and so we continue to believe strongly in that market. But as the company has grown and evolved, and it has grown quite significantly in the three years that I've been there, we have pushed heavily into different markets across the country. PJM was our first focus as far as an organized market. I was kind of brought on commensurate with our push into PJM. Since that time, we have gone and expanded into other markets as well. Particularly, I would say ERCOT is a major focus for us right now, as it is for a number of folks in the renewable space. MISO and SPP also high on that list. And then a number of areas in the non-RTO West. Yeah, I know you got some activities going in BPA's territory out in Oregon, some things up in the Pacific Northwest as well. So what is your role with Pinegate? What are you up to there? At Pinegate, I serve as the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs. And I would say that my portfolio of what I oversee is really three things. One, it is federal agency engagement. That's by and large engagement with FERC staff, the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. I myself was a lawyer, as was Noah at FERC. Federal agency engagement, that is expanded into a number of different agencies, Treasury, IRS, DOE, as we talk about some of the things that are impacting the solar world now. The second thing is RTO engagement and just wholesale markets in general. I have a great team that I work with that engages at the stakeholder level on transmission and interconnection issues and, and market design issues across the various markets with a real heavy focus on PJM and ERCOT, considering those are priority areas for the company. 
And then the last thing I focus on is international trade. And that is something that I frankly did not have a great deal of experience when I joined Pinegate three years ago. And it was kind of thrown into my portfolio of, oh, and yes, you'll monitor this. But over the last three years, if you're familiar with the solar world at all, it has been a bit of a rocky road with respect to international trade. And there's been a lot, a lot going on. So I like to tell folks that I have kind of got a PhD in international trade very, very quickly just because I've had to for my company. (laughs) It ebbs and flows, but I do spend about 40 or 50% of my time on international trade issues. That is something that I've certainly come to appreciate of late is that when we think about the energy transition here, generally the energy industry in the U.S., it is really very quickly morphed from a domestic sector or domestic industry to a global industry. It's done that very, very quickly, and it's affecting all facets of the industry, but certainly solar in particular. Let's kick into that a little bit. When you talk about some of the international issues that are impacting the solar industry, what's going on there? What's driving your focus in that area? With respect to international trade, going back 13 years or so now, there have been ongoing tariff issues regarding imports into the United States of either solar modules, solar panels, as we say, or the cells that go into solar modules. And they've played out in a a few different venues. Really, back in 2010, the thing, the, one of the things that started this all off was called an anti-dumping and countervailing duties proceeding that played out at Commerce with respect to imported modules from China. And as a result of that proceeding, there was very significant tariffs imposed on Chinese imported modules and cells. And as a result of that, you really don't see direct imports from China of modules and cells anymore. The industry migrated very quickly to other parts of the world, particularly Southeast Asia and other areas and whatnot. So that was the big thing that started off this tariff litigation that's been going on. If we can just try to give a little background for our folks here on what that anti-dumping procedure means. So if we're thinking about those rules, they're not unique to the energy industry. No, certainly not. They're applied in a number of contexts in steel, washing machines, any number of things. These are oftentimes when you talk about U.S. trade law, you're talking about very old statues from the 20s, 30s, some from a little bit later, 60s and 70s, that were designed to be relatively protectionist and use a pretty blunt instrument of tariffs and duties to address complaints by domestic industry. With respect to ADCBD or anti-dumping and countervailing duties, The complaint from the domestic industry is that at that time, particularly, was that China was flooding the market, dumping into the market, the global market, solar panels in order to maintain market share and doing it in a way that would disadvantage domestic industry. Yeah. So the idea being right is that if they were dumping these super cheap panels on the market, they would basically suppress the prices for everybody else. That would cause domestic companies to go bankrupt. And then that would be sort of a strategic way for these Chinese companies to be able to capture market share and to hold it. It was almost a way to use tariffs, which is kind of a fancy word for taxes, really, to levelize or raise the cost of those panels to try and maintain a competitive balance and to make sure that people weren't strategically using those low prices to capture market share. Does that sound about right? That's exactly right. There's a couple of different levers that you can pull with respect to international trade to do that. Anti-dumping is one. The other one that's been particularly influential on the solar world has been what's called the 201 tariffs. And these are tariffs that are applied to all imports of a certain product from various countries. So whereas the anti-dumping tariffs target a specific country, and with respect to solar, it was imports from China, the 201 tariffs attach duties to tariffs to all imports into the United States of solar modules and solar cells, with a few rare exceptions for developing countries. But those 201 tariffs were implemented under the Trump administration, They've been extended by the Biden administration. So it's seen a couple of different presidents there. But that's been another major, major focus in the solar world in in my time there. So tell us a little bit about how that impacts your business and how those transitions, how does that help you evolve or not help you evolve in the space? With respect to my time at the company, it has been the biggest challenge because you are always trying to navigate that space of, where are we going to see increased costs in the form of tariffs put on 
products. And so when you're talking about making procurement decisions, these are long lead time items. When I'm building a 100, 200, 300 megawatt solar farm, I am procuring the panels for that well in advance of when that project is going to COD or whatnot. So it makes it very difficult to have confidence in your purchasing decisions because of some of these things that can change drastically the price of the product. And I will use, I think the most poignant example of this is what we saw in the ADCVD space, the anti-dumping space in what's called the auction proceeding that was instituted at Commerce last year. And so what happened there is that a small company came forward, filed a petition with Commerce and said, hey, we think that these four countries in Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, are circumventing the Chinese anti-dumping orders. So we think Commerce, you should actually attach those duties from the China orders onto imports from these four new countries. And in doing that, they expose huge tariffs on imports from those four countries. And why, the reason it was so significant for the solar industry is because at the time, particularly, about 80% of the modules that were coming into the country came from these four countries. So it was an enormous deal. And the level of exposure could vary, but it was unknown at the time, particularly th that this petition was filed. And what we learned very quickly is that the ceiling for tariffs could be extremely high, in some cases as high as 250% of the value of the solar module. And so when you're talking about building a solar site where anywhere from 35 to 50% of your construction costs are solar modules, and the price of that product because of tariffs can go up 250%, the economics of that project change drastically. What was an economically viable project can very quickly go underwater just because of the draconian nature of those tariffs. So that level of uncertainty had a big chilling impact on the solar industry last year as we were waiting, waiting, waiting to get some clarity from commerce on what on how that proceeding would play out. But it's this uncertainty that really makes it difficult to get your head around transactions, to do long-term planning for procurement when you feel like the rules can change so quickly as a result of policy decisions. So now fast forward to the Inflation Reduction Act. And we're seeing, I think, a little bit of a similar paradigm. And I'd like to hear your perspective on how has that impacted your business? I know there's some talk about some of that getting peeled back. And how are you guys handling sort of that regulatory uncertainty around your business? The Inflation Reduction Act has been a game changer for our company and for the industry writ large. There's a number of different things in the IRA, but most principally for us, it is a 10-year extension of the ITC, of the investment tax credit and the production tax credit for us, for solar, but for other renewable technologies. Up until that point, we would really only see one or two-year extensions of that tax credit which makes it very difficult to do long-term planning for a renewable company, for a company particularly of our size. So to have that runway, to have 10 years where you know that this is going to be the regulatory regime, the policy regime for 10 years, really allows you to do strategic planning for your company as a renewable company and, it's, and for an industry that previously was not possible. That within itself was a game changer for us and has really allowed us to move forward with planning and deploying capital at a, at a level that was not previously possible. There's a couple other really interesting facets of the IRA that are impacting the industry significantly. I would say a couple of those for us and that I spend a lot of time engaging with other folks in the industry and, and with folks in government about are the energy community adder and the domestic content adder. And for those that aren't aware, those are basically two adders that allow the taxpayer to avail themselves to an additional 10% investment tax credit if you're able to satisfy the requirements of those. And for energy communities, the way you can avail yourself of that tax credit is three ways. It's you can develop a site on a brownfield. You can develop a site in an area that has significant employment ties or tax revenue ties to the fossil fuel industry as a way of transitioning that community away from fossil fuels and into the renewable space. And three, you can develop a site that is on or near a closed coal mine or a closed coal generating facility. And so that has had a big impact on the industry where we're citing projects, the economics of projects, projects that were not previously going to pencil, that were not going to be economically viable 
are now because of that, which is great for those communities in which those projects are located. That's been a big part of the IRA. Number two has been the domestic content adder. And this one, again, allows the taxpayer to take an additional 10% tax credit. It's a complicated test, but when you can demonstrate that a sufficient amount of your project contains manufactured products from the United States and that 100% of the steel and iron for that project were manufactured or produced in the United States as well. And so those are together, those just really have supercharged the industry, created a lot of opportunity. Those are tremendous opportunities for us, things that we're really looking to understand and use. And we've closed a couple of transactions under that energy community adder now. The other point that I'll make about the IRA that is so fascinating is the transferability aspect of it and the ability to transfer tax credits as opposed to doing bespoke tax equity financing. This allows you to basically sell tax credits on the market to buyers. It really lowers the barrier for entry into those that are looking into getting into the tax equity space and financing of renewable projects. And it's lowered the barriers. And as a result of that, it has increased, I would say exponentially, the amount of folks that are now interested in using tax equity to partner with renewable companies. That's great. So let's unpack that tax equity financing piece a little bit here, because for me, that is sort of at the heart of the IRA, is that while it is a tax bill, effectively, what it really is, is a energy policy that is trying to use the tax system to incentivize investors to invest in different things, renewable resources over carbon emitting resources as sort of an obvious example, but also to use things like the domestic content adder and things like that to incentivize folks to use materials and things that are made in the state as opposed to abroad or to direct financing towards these certain communities, extraction communities, areas that are coal centric and things like that. So when we think about it at a Basic level, let's talk through maybe how sort of the tax equity financing system works. The way I think about it, Brett, is that you guys will go out there and you'll go to build a project and the project has a certain cost or a certain value. And the IRA will say that, okay, some company can come along and claim that value as a discount against what they would otherwise pay the federal government and federal income tax. Is that about right? That's right. And there's a couple of different ways that we raise the capital for our projects, but that is the pillar of it right there. So when we talk about a 30% ITC for a project, and then if you add some of these other things, you can go 40 or 50%. It's very low cost capital for us to build projects. When you can avail yourself to a 30, 40, 50%, it facilitates the building and construction of those projects that much more. The more tax equity we have, the less that we have to come in on the debt side and on the sponsorship side. It just makes it easier and less expensive to build renewable projects. Got it. Yeah. So if you're talking about like 30%, for example, let's say you're building a project that costs $100 million. You're saying that 30% of the total value of that project, $30 million bucks would be available that you could transfer to an investor. So some other investor out there, maybe it's a big bank that owes lots of income taxes or a company that would potentially own lots of income taxes can pay you to acquire that $30 million tax discount. So let's say it was a one-to-one swap. They could give you 30 million bucks and you'd give them $30 million in tax credits. When they went to file their taxes at the end of the year, they would essentially write that down and they would pay 30 million less in tax to the federal government under that structure. That's correct. It kind of makes sense now is that if I'm that investor and I've got that tax burden, I'd way rather pay $50 million less taxes because I ticked the box for domestic content and I ticked the box for citing the facility in one of these energy communities. So I would think that that then has a natural feedback loop to you guys, where me as an investor that would be interested in providing tax equity finance, paying you for those credits, I would now say, hey, Brett, you got any projects that are able to capitalize on these adders? Because I'm interested in maximizing the benefit to me by reducing my taxes. So naturally, we come to you and say, can you get there? You go, hang on a second, and now your pipeline sorts. So different projects move to the top of the heap as a result of the change. Absolutely. Just going back, what you said about the IRA is absolutely correct. This is a tax vehicle by which we are accomplishing energy policy objectives. And at the federal level, that is how historically in the last 20 years or so, we have moved the needle on energy policy. It is through tax policy and incentivizing behavior. With the IRA, 
with these adders and with the transferability part of it, we're inserting even more capital into the market to build these types of projects. And we're incenting particular behavior with respect to these other adders. With energy communities, we're building projects in areas that have historically relied on fossil fuels, either located in their communities for tax revenues or employment or whatnot. And so I think our tax equity providers like saying that they're leaning into accomplishing some of these policy objectives as well. And and that's particularly true also on the domestic content side. I think, and we can talk about trade, but there's a great emphasis on onshoring a number of these manufacturing processes and in creating American jobs along the way and for a number of these communities. And to say that your project is contributing to that or a project that you're an investor in is an appealing thing. So this is something we've touched on on a couple of our podcasts. We interviewed Sudin Kelly, who does a lot of work with tribal communities, and Patrick Courier's done a lot of work on the Hill, and he talked about this impact on underprivileged communities, making sure that this transition is beneficial for them. So it's really interesting to hear you highlight that, that investors are also looking for that. I think that's definitely a shift that we've seen in the last 10 years for the positive. I would say you're already seeing this in real terms and in real dollars. I think the American Clean Power Association did a study recently about investments that we have seen post-IRA. Where are the dollars being spent already? We're talking about more manufacturing side here. There's been somewhere in the neighborhood of 46 to 50 announcements of domestic manufacturing facilities. I think half of those are for solar, some are for the offshore wind industry, some are for the battery industry. But you're seeing a tremendous amount of being invested in the United States on manufacturing the solar and the wind and the battery components for this clean energy transition. And when you're doing that, you're creating well-paying jobs. If you look at where those manufacturing facilities are being built, it's in a lot of rural areas, economic areas that have historically been disadvantaged. And so I think it's one of the great things about the IRA is we're broadening the tent for this energy transition and extending that to a lot of folks that perhaps didn't receive the benefits previously of this energy transition. But now there's a factory in their community, there's jobs associated in their community, and they're directly benefiting from that as well. And I think that we're hopefully building a lot of positive momentum in that direction, and therefore turning a lot of people onto this idea of the energy transition that perhaps had been more historically skeptical of that idea. That's, I think, a huge piece to think about and a part that does, in some sense, probably not get enough press as far as the solar industry goes. Is just if you think about the job cycle, the types of materials and things like that that are needed to make these plants, the blue collar types of jobs that are necessary. A big piece of this industry is focused, frankly, on mining because the raw materials, particularly polysilicon, that is one of the main components in making solar panels it's a rare earth mineral, right? It it requires a big mining operation to pull that out of the ground and then in a big industrial process to purify that and turn it into the stuff that you guys need to actually make the panels to be able to generate clean energy here. And those at one time in our history, Brett, if I recollect correctly, the US was a big manufacturer, a big producer or miner of these types of raw materials. But for a variety of reasons, that changed over time. And a lot of that business activities and the jobs associated with it ended up moving offshore. If that's the trend, is the IRA changing that? How are we thinking about re-onshoring those jobs and those opportunities back here to the States? I'll unpack it a little bit and say, when you're talking about manufacturing a solar panel, the module, I don't think a lot of folks understand exactly how you get there and the multiple steps in the manufacturing process along the way. I think it's helpful to understand that. And it starts with mining quartz and then refining that and turning that into metallurgical grade polysilicon. And then from there, you produce what are called ingots, which are basically large crystals. And then you slice those up into wafers using laser or diamond saw, whatever. And then you string those together in cells solar processing cells, and then you take the cells, you encase that in an aluminum box, strap it together, and you have your solar panel. So there's multiple stages here. Globally, you see each of those phases play out in different parts of the world, and that's been a reaction to a number of different things and whatnot. But to your point about also the U.S. historically did a number of these things, 
the, they were offshored and now there's this conversation about how to reshore. It's an interesting example when you take a look at solar because the supply chain has morphed and changed so much as a result, as a direct result of these trade wars between countries and tariff disputes between countries. If you go back to what I was talking about in the beginning about the, you had 13 years ago, these anti-dumping orders that put limits and duties on imports from China of solar panels. Well, China responded directly to that and said, you're going to tax our solar panels. We're going to tax imported polysilicon from the United States that comes into our country that we use to produce these solar panels. So China responded by putting high, high tariffs on polysilicon and basically made it not economically viable to ship U.S. polysilicon, which had been an industry until that point, to China. And as a result of that, a number of those factories, those polysilicon manufacturing facilities closed and really ramped down for the next 10 years. And so you really see this tit for tat in the solar world now. And so the conversation now becomes post IRA and and there's so much focus on how to onshore supply chains across all industries. But I will say there is a particular emphasis on the solar industry. And our conversations and my conversations with folks on the Hill about this, Republicans and Democrats, I would say that one of the only areas of bipartisan agreement is that we have to pivot away from relying so heavily on China. The question then becomes, how do you do that? And that is a complicated question. And that is a nuanced question. And that is because of how complicated it is to manufacture a solar panel in the different stages along the process. And when you say you want to reshore that, that's great. I think we, you know, we're really supportive of that. But how are you going to line that up? What phases are you going to onshore first? How is capital going to be deployed to do that? What's the most economically efficient way to do that? Because at the end of the day, we don't want to increase the price of this product so much that it's going to be not affordable to produce solar power. And then that results in high rates for customers. So it's a nuanced question of how you do it. The IRA takes it a a couple of different ways. From a demand side, you have the domestic content adder. For companies like PineGate, a developer gives us an additional ITC credit if we're able to build a project that contains domestic content. But also on the supply side, the IRA has production tax credits for actually producing these things, for producing solar panels and cells and polysilicon. You get a dollar per production tax credit under what's called the 45X tax credits. You get a dollar amount for producing these things. So we're incentivizing the supply side and the demand side with the IRA. And as a result of that, you are seeing a onshoring of these supply chains that is pretty unprecedented and that you did not see when we were relying on a purely tariff-based regime to try to incentivize domestic production. So what's the timeline for that onshoring? Now we see this policy, like how long does that take and how long does that onshoring take to then flow to actual alive solar farms that's operational? That is a great question. And that's, again, a conversation that we have had with a number of folks in the administration at DOE and on the Hill, because it's a nuanced conversation and sometimes difficult to engage with policymakers at that level of nuance. But when you're talking about the vision for onshoring the solar supply chain, the lead time is different depending on the stage of the manufacturing process. And I like to think of it as far as working backwards. The last stage of the process is manufacturing a module where you're taking the cell, you're encasing it in a junction box, wrapping it in some ribbon, putting some solar glass on it, and that there is your solar module. A facility like that, that is just manufacturing the end product, the module itself can be stood up relatively quickly. In 12 to 18 months, you can have a facility up and running that can do that. There are U.S. jobs associated with that, and we think that that is a great thing. The further you go upstream in the solar manufacturing process, the longer the lead time gets, the more capital that is involved in the building of these facilities, and the more complicated it gets from the building of these facilities with respect to environmental permitting, workforce things, energy consumption. I think when you're talking about cell production in the United States, and I think there's a big emphasis within this White House and the Treasury Department on onshoring the cell processing in this country. And so you've seen a lot of investment there. I think it's probably going to be three years before you see substantial volumes of cells produced in the United States that are bankable products, because you're talking about a lot of new players into this space. Have they done this before? Where have they done this? And 
is their product going to work? So I think you're talking about a three-year or so timeline for that. You go one stage up to that ingot and wafer phase. And I think you're probably even talking about a, a little bit longer of a time frame, a four and five-year time frame, just because of how complex those processes are. We're engaging in a lot of those discussions right now as a number of folks in the industry, in the development community, thinking about vertical integration, thinking about access to modules that are produced in the United States that are going to allow me to take this domestic content adder, that are going to remove me from a number of these trade disputes, and that I'm going to have more insight into the raw materials that are going into my product. So we're exploring these things in great detail. And it gets complicated because where are you going to put this facility? Where are you going to put a manufacturing facility of this nature? You need access. You need access to energy, consistent energy, electricity. So price is a big thing there. Workforce is a big thing there. Real estate is a big thing. Are you located near a port where you're going to be able to import some of the other materials that are then going to go into some of these things? It gets complicated and it's a lot of dollars. And so people want to make sure that they're making very, very purposeful and very considered decisions of where they're going to put these facilities. And a lot of what is going to influence that are the rules of what you can count as a domestic product and whatnot. And we're waiting on Treasury to issue a lot of those rules. We just recently got some initial guidance on the domestic content adder, but people want to know the regulatory regime before they expend huge amounts of capital on these manufacturing facilities. I know there's been a lot of talk about the EPA rules and their impact on potential early retirements of coal plants. Are the EPA rules also impacting sort of the lead times? And how is the discussion going with the EPA, if you can shed some light on that? Or if there is a discussion. (laughs) It's not as much for us at the EPA level on that. From an environmental side, I think we are more focused on the permitting discussion that's happening now, the NEPA discussions that are happening with respect to a number of the things that Mike talked about of the materials that are going to go into the wind, solar, storage world. Where are they going to come from? What are those manufacturing and refining processes look like? And how are we going to build those products and get those materials in an environmentally responsible way? And what is the permitting process for that look like? There's a permitting process for some of our facilities, not all of them, but there will be increasingly for in the manufacturing stages of these things. Yeah, it seems like manufacturing is almost the easier putt here from a regulatory standpoint. We've already seen some pretty significant announcements. First Solar, for example, about a year ago, announced a $1.2 billion expansion for their existing facilities to assemble the modules that you were talking about, which is great. And they cite in their investment thesis there that the IRA was a predicate for all of that investment and that they intend. And not only that, it literally was directly, as you said, Brett, First Solar had moved a lot of that module manufacturing process over to places like Malaysia, Cambodia, and Vietnam, places like that, which was where a lot of that work was happening. And so you're seeing sort of that direct result here, bringing the easiest phase of that, that assembly phase back on shore. But the mining side is tricky. And I think that that's an area where nationally we need to do some soul searching from a policy perspective. The types of materials that are necessary to build these things, we do have them here in the States. But they involve heavy manufacturing and extraction processes in places like the desert southwest and elsewhere to get cadmium and silicone and lithium and all the types of things that are going to create these batteries. And so for me, it's an important lesson in that there are always a series of choices for whatever type of energy technology that we have that we need to bake and we need to sort of wrestle with from a policy perspective. We onshore this stuff. It's great for jobs, great for the economy, generates lots of revenue here. The other side of that is we're going to be creating these types of heavy manufacturing processes, and we need to make sure that we're doing that in an environmentally and ethically responsible way. There really needs to be, and I think it's happening, a discussion amongst all the stakeholders of what do we want here? And I think this is me talking and not necessarily the views of Pinegate, but I think it's, we really need to be, for the environmental community and for those of us in the renewable community, thinking about embracing a more industrial policy of where these products going to come from and making sure it's done in an environmentally responsible way. But I do fear that if our policy as a country is we don't want any of that done in the United States, then we're pushing it to areas of the world where perhaps there is not as strict environmental regulation or workforce regulation or whatnot. I think it's not necessarily a bad thing to bring some of that to the United States where there are more strict 
environmental regulations, workforce regulations. And that's a conversation that's going to have to happen between local communities where these things are going to be located amongst the environmental community and the renewable community and industry more broadly about what is the best way to do that. A big part of this is that this is a global problem. So when we push these things to areas that have less regulation, where they're not perhaps done and managed in a way that is environmentally responsible, are we really creating much of a benefit? I totally agree. And so it's a really exciting time to be in the renewable space or just the decarbonization space because you look at it and it really is a second or whatever you want to say, industrial revolution of things that can happen here with respect to decarbonizing the grid and the economic opportunity that's in front of us as an industry to do it, to rebuild some of these systems with respect to the electricity sector, but also some of the more heavy industrial processes and transportation and whatnot. There just has to be a nuanced conversation about how it's being done, how communities are being involved, how communities are directly benefiting from facilities that are located in their communities to make sure that the rising tide is lifting all boats when we're talking about this transition. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with you on this being an exciting time to be in the decarbonization space. And certainly Pinegate, you guys are kind of right in the middle of that scrum. You mentioned a little earlier in the pod that you've had a couple of projects that you recently closed that were a direct result of some of these policies, IRA particularly. Can you give a little flavor of how that's affecting you guys and how you guys are working through these? We have just recently closed a few projects, financed them under the Energy Community Adder. As I mentioned before, there's a couple of different ways you can check the box for the Energy Community Adder. I will say that in our experience, there's really, at the end of the day, two paths for the energy community adder, one more difficult than the other. The first is if you're doing an energy community project that's relying on a closed coal mine or looking on a closed coal generating facility, the regulations are pretty clear that if there was ever one of those facilities near your, and near is defined in proximity terms or whatever, near your facility, then you're golden. You can take that adder and it's kind of evergreen in, in the fact that you can take that adder. And, and there's a lot of regulatory certainty associated with that. So one of our projects that we closed was located near an old coal mine. And so the financing, the economic, the, using the energy community adder was relatively clear because that coal mine used to operate, it closed. Therefore, you're able to take this adder. Where it gets more complicated is with respect when you're relying on the prong of the energy community adder that looks at the unemployment rate in a community and how that unemployment rate compares to the national unemployment rate or where there's a tax revenue component that has been associated with that facility that has relied on coal or I'm sorry, on fossil fuels as an X percentage of overall tax base. And the way that Treasury has written the regulations, those things are going to fluctuate from year to year. Where it gets complicated is, and Treasury has said that the defining point of when they're going to look at whether you're eligible to take the ITC is when that project is placed in service. There's some grandfathering rules, but by and large, you can be going into a project with not knowing for certain whether you're going to get that adder because of the lead time associated with building a large utility scale project, which can take over a year. On a year basis, every May, the Census Bureau is going to publish these unemployment numbers. Then DOE or whatnot is going to update its map of these are the energy communities where you can check the box using the unemployment thing. And so I think for our industry, May is going to be like circled on everybody's calendar, right? Because that's when the unemployment numbers are going to refresh and you're going to see whether your project falls in, falls out of the energy community. Adder. So there's more apprehension associated with using that particular adder. We have a great data and analytics team and a GIS team that has gone back and looked at how these areas have fluctuated over the last 10 or 15 years. So that gives us some level of certainty of how we think that the unemployment rates are going to potentially vary for projects. But it gets more complicated and it takes more to get your tax equity partners, your debt partners comfortable that that avenue is going to be available using that project because of just the variability of it. I will say there is a grandfathering mechanism that Treasury has put in place where if you begin construction of a project and you're located in an energy community, then Treasury will carry that forward to your place in service 
if you began construction in an area and you were in an energy community, but you didn't finish for a year or two years, and by the time you were placed in service, you fell out, you could rely on when you began construction as a safe harbor. The twist there that the industry is really grappling with right now is Treasury is only allowing you to go back to January 1, 2023. So projects that began construction before that aren't able to rely on that safe harbor. Because of what I talked about, it, it can take a year or two to build some of these bigger, bigger facilities. There are projects now that began construction before January 1, 2023 that will not be placed in service until the end of this year or maybe even next year. So they're going to have to rely exclusively on that date that they're placed in service. And there's just more uncertainty about whether they're going to be able to qualify under that employment component. It's really interesting how much regulatory risk is involved here. (laughs) From tariffs to tax credits to just the impact on investors in the space. As somebody who trades for a living, I just always think that there's got to be risk premiums that come with that. And ultimately, those risk premiums flow to the customer. I wish that wasn't the situation. I think that's right. My background is coming from FERC and then representing RTOs and utilities and private practices. This has always been an industry that is heavily influenced by regulatory regimes and policy decisions. I would say that that is even more true when you're talking about renewable development, because here we're talking about, I focus primarily on federal issues whether it's in the trade space, the tariff space, the FERC space, or the kind of tax space. But then there's a whole host of other regulatory issues that impact our projects as well. Everything from the state level, state policies, to even very, very hyper local issues when you're talking about zoning and permitting for these particular projects. So it is a web of things that you're navigating when you're developing projects like this at the most global level when you're talking about tariffs and trade, but also down to the very, very hyper-localized, are these three county commissioners going to approve this local zoning permit for this project? Yes, unfortunately, all those variables and those uncertainties do create expenses and risk premiums, but that's kind of just the lay of the land right now. And we're certainly doing our best to kind of navigate through that space. It is the way of the sword for our industry, isn't it? The regulatory uncertainty is just the way. I know when we talk to investors and clients and things like that, the number of times we have to say something like, well, the rules that I'm about to tell you are actively changing right now. So tomorrow they could be totally different from the ones we have today is completely true. And having somebody like you who's helping firms like Pinegate navigate through this stuff is becoming just an increasingly imperative gating type of need to be able to get projects over the finish line efficiently. As you start to think about our world changing, what's next for Pinegate? Where do you see the future going for you guys? What are you thinking about next? It's been a really interesting time at Pinegate. Certainly the last year, and the company has just grown and evolved so much in the three years that I've been here. We as a company are really big on this push into becoming a true independent power producer, IPP, and distancing ourselves from the more traditional developer style approach of using just tax equity and debt to finance projects to really having more of a vested long-term interest in these projects and the revenues of these projects. Pinegate is a company is interested in the long haul. We want to be the long-term owner and operator of these projects. And therefore, our view of the market and our view of this space is perhaps a little more long-term than some other of our peer companies. We have had a great partner in Generate Capital that has come in and we have formed a great partnership with them and and they've provided some of the capital and the opportunities to expand our platform and give us the ability to think about our investments in that way. We've just recently closed another transaction with Generate to come in and expand our IPP platform even more and give us the runway to build that out. It's a big time of growth For us in a number of different markets, we continue to be very bullish on the Southeast. As I said in the beginning, we as a company have deep ties in that area. And we feel that we have, I will say, a bit of a strategic advantage there because we are able to navigate. Some players stay away from that space because it's not as liquid as some of the RTO markets or whatnot. So the Southeast will continue to be a big focus for us. Texas, as the renewable industry has kind of flocked there in response to some of the lead times with respect to interconnection queues that you've seen there, Texas continues to be a big, big focus for us, as does 
MISO and SPP, which we see a lot of opportunity and growth there. I will also say, and I touched on it a little bit before, I think developers, and PineGate is no exception here, are increasingly interested in vertical integration. And PineGate has been big on that from the beginning in the sense that PineGate has a partner company, Blue Ridge Power, that has a kind of a joint ownership structure. But PineGate does the development and the financing side of the projects. Blue Ridge Power does our engineering procurement and construction side of the projects. So we have always thought of ourselves as having a unique, long-term, pretty comprehensive view of everything from the greenfielding or the M&A of early stage projects to the putting the steel on the ground and the long-term operation and maintenance. But I think what you're seeing in this space, in the developer space, is even more of a focus on vertical integration to, for solar developers, where are your modules coming from? And do you have a reliable supply of modules that you have certainty with respect to the components that are going into those, where are those components being sourced and whatnot? So I think you're seeing a a lot of focus on that. We are having a number of conversations about how to enter that space, whether that's a JV or long-term commitments with certain folks to bring facilities to the United States to kind of have that long-term view on your procurement and on your supply. And I think we will be able to announce in the relative near future some really exciting announcements in that space. But I think that's the general shift. It's been a great time of maturation in the renewable space. I think the renewable industry has really grown up a lot over the last couple of years and is not the small kid on the block anymore. I think that they're increasingly a sophisticated actor that is taken seriously in these policy discussions and it's an exciting time to be there. So Brett, we've talked about all these hurdles, but also all these really exciting things that are also happening as part of IRA and just a lot of new investors coming into the space. And if you could wave your magic wand and have like the perfect energy future, what would you change? How would things look different from your perspective? We've got a lot of things right, right now, as far as the construction of solar facilities and utility scale facilities, there's a lot of capital in the market to do that. There's enormous demand from off takers and tax equity for that. The IRA and those regulatory regimes have been tremendously successful. So I don't know if I would tinker much there. The issues that we have, and we haven't really discussed them here, how do we get these things to market? It's the interconnection queues and it's the electric transmission issues of how do we move this power around? Because so much of this stuff is now getting stuck in the interconnection queues, or there's just a lack of transmission capacity in certain areas of the country, particularly where there's great potential for renewable resources, but there's no transmission infrastructure to bring it to market. That's going to be an enormous undertaking. I was optimistic, and hopefully still am optimistic, I guess, that we're going to have a frank and honest discussion at the congressional level about what some of the future of transmission policy should look like in this country. Coming out of the debt ceiling discussions, I'm a little less bullish on that now because of some of the permitting reform stuff that landed there. I don't know if the level of urgency regarding the transmission discussion is still there. I hope it is, and we'll be engaged there, but that's going to have to play out. And there's a number of different regulatory hurdles associated with that, whether they're at the federal level or the state siting level about that. That's what is keeping me up at night right now, because whereas interconnection queues used to just hear, oh, MISO is terrible or SPP is terrible, or and then PJM had major issues. It's everywhere now. I hear from my teams. I was on a number of meetings this week about what's out west and in some of the non-RTO jurisdictions about the state of interconnection there. It's migrated a bit to the Southeast as well. It's not an isolated issue anymore. And this belief in the industry, I think historically there had been a belief in the industry of, well, if that happens in an area, we'll just go find the new market or a market that's not as saturated. And what is the next frontier? Where's the next market that we can go to and we can be a first mover? There are none now. There is an influx of demand and interconnection requests everywhere now. So this thought that we're going to be able to find the next frontier and evade this is not accurate. We have to have a comprehensive discussion of of how are we getting these resources online? What is the best way to do that? And who's going to pay for that? Speaking for Pinegate, we understand that there are costs of that that we should be shouldering because of the benefits that we're getting. But there's a broader discussion of what are the benefits of all that infrastructure and who should be paying for it as well. So I think that's a big issue right now. 
the trade stuff is also just really important for us, for an industry. It's coming up with the narrative and being able to have conversations with policymakers about this is what the future of the renewable energy industry looks like. This is how we're going to build this up in the United States. The multi-phases that we're going to do to onshore those processes, to create opportunities for American jobs and to put jobs and dollars in these communities. But at the same time that we're doing that and purposely deploying capital to do that, we don't want to be sacrificing deployment today. There's decarbonization objectives that we need to be hitting today. There's tremendous demand for this product today. So it's how do we continue to deploy at the level we need to to decarbonize and to meet state and federal policy goals while also building out that longer runway to establish more domestic supply chains for all the underlying processes that are going to go into this energy transition. Yeah, that's such an important observation because you're right. I mean, it resonates with me that so much of our conversation today, Brett, has been, like you said, about this industrial revolution, literally recreating a new domestic manufacturing industry in the U.S. And that is totally going to take some time. At the same time, we need to get these types of resources online. We see things like coal retirements accelerating across the grid and things like that. And the realities are we need to do both. You almost like you have that golden end state you want to get to where we have this domestic green manufacturing economy that ultimately manifests itself in the state. But at the same time, the goal is to get a bunch of these projects developed, get them financed and get them online. Those two objectives can absolutely come into tension, and you've got to kind of keep your eye on both sides of the prize, so to speak. It's a very nuanced conversation, and that's what makes it so difficult to have at some of the high levels with policymakers. Because if you say, well, we need some runway or we don't want to sacrifice deployment, then you can be perceived as being weak on trade policy or not favoring policies that look to decouple from China or certain parts of the world. And that's not the case. We just want to have an intellectual, honest conversation about what is the universe that is possible? How are we going to do this? What time frames are we going to do this? What regulatory certainty do we need to do this to deploy those levels of capital while at the same time being able to get projects built on the ground today and accomplish some of the decarbonization objectives? Because we are going to have to build an enormous amount of renewable energy in this country for this to happen. And we cannot lose that time in waiting for us to have the perfect supply chain that we all are working towards. We have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time here. Particularly when you have most of the ISOs saying we may have reliability issues in the near future. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. And there's that little thing keeping the lights on. Yes. We've got to keep an eye on that one as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, Brett, thank you very much for your time. This has been really great. I know I've learned a lot. And we really appreciate hearing your perspective and Pine Gate's perspective. And thank you guys for being a leader in this space. And we look forward to seeing what's ahead for you guys. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. And as you said, there's just so much going on in this space, but we will continue to try to navigate it. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Brett. Thanks. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com. That's K-N-O-W where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power.